you better not say that. That's what we reporters covering COVID were told. There are certain things you must not say. For example, MSNBC told us. From a certain corner of the right is this theory that the coronavirus, quote, escaped from the lab. Escaped the lab? How ignorant. Everyone knows it wasn't made in a lab. This coronavirus was not man-made. That is not a possibility. And mere debate about that, we were told, posed a new threat. Not the virus itself, but misinformation. Many media decided it's our job to make certain theories disappear. One theory that just won't go away is that this virus came from a Chinese lab. Facebook totally banned this false claim, but now the FBI director says COVID's origin is... Most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. The Department of Energy has concluded COVID-19 likely came from a lab leak in China. So did the smug media apologize and say, we shouldn't be in the censoring business? No, they just ignore what they did. The closest to an admission of guilt we found was this from Chris Hayes. I have to say, there's a kernel of truth, the idea that some folks were too quick to shut down the lab leak theory. Media imposed similar bans on what you could say about masks when Senator Rand Paul made this true statement. The masks don't work very well, particularly the cloth mask. YouTube suspended him. And Facebook throttled the reporting of science journalist John Tierney when he pushed back against forcing kids to wear masks. More than 10,000 parents said that masks were giving their kids headaches, making it harder for them to concentrate. Partly false, said Facebook, while cutting him off. Yet now, a lot of science says wearing masks... Probably makes little or no difference. Perhaps the most blatant case was the media's claim that the New York Post scoop about Hunter Biden's emails just could not be true. We're supposed to believe that Hunter Biden in a drunken stupor dropped off his laptop in, I guess, apparently QAnon repair office, right? Obviously, Russian interference, said the media. It's likely Russian disinformation. It is so obviously a Russian operation. Twitter's bosses wouldn't even let users decide for themselves. They labeled the Post report potentially harmful and blocked users from sharing it. Facebook was sneakier. They suppressed the story instead of banning it outright. Of course, now the media admit the Post story was true. Several news organizations have authenticated many emails from the laptop. So the media who smeared this as a Russian plot, do they now admit they were wrong? No, they just say things like, Nobody cares about Hunter Biden's laptop. Bad as the media were. What's worse is that government wanted to censor. We've done nothing in terms of content regulation or in terms of content oversight. Senator Mark Warner and some other politicians recklessly proposed using government force. Fortunately, that never happened. But government did apply lots of pressure. We're flagging problematic posts for Facebook uh, that spread disinformation. The White House even urged Facebook to crack down on private messages on WhatsApp. We'll never know about all the government's attempts to censor. But now that Twitter's new CEO opened his books, we can see some of the things government tried to do. Moderation requests from every corner of government, from the FBI, the DHS, the HHS, DOD. The CIA and State Department. And even individual politicians, Maine Senator Angus King's staff, complained about accounts that were anti-King. Congressman Adam Schiff's office asked Twitter to remove content, suspend many accounts, and suppress search results. 
To Twitter's credit, a staffer responded, no, we don't do this. At one point, the Department of Homeland Security created something they called a disinformation governance board. Its boss posted this video. They're laundering disinfo and we really should take note and not support their lies with our wallet, voice or vote. That was a step too far for the public. The Biden administration is facing fierce backlash for convening a group called the Disinformation Governance Board. Homeland Security terminated the board. Still, lots of government agencies wanted to control what you read and heard. Often they protected us from the truth. And when they got caught, the White House casually brushed off Twitter's revelations. Twitter was so haphazardly pushed this distraction. Uh, that is a that is a full of uh, old news. Old news only because they concealed it for so long. At least today, finally, we can discuss those things we weren't allowed to say. COVID-19 likely came from a lab leak. The masks don't work very well. The laptop data we had analyzed showed no evidence it was faked. Eventually, the truth does come out. But let's not let anyone in government or out say, we'll be the gatekeepers. We know what's true. They don't. Here at Stossel TV, I'm the gatekeeper. But instead of censoring, here we'll debate. More information, not less, is the best way to get to the truth. I'm alive. Yes. Just last week, I thought I might not be because I got COVID. Bad COVID. I dodged COVID for three years, but last week I suddenly felt lousy, had a fever, and a COVID test said positive. No big deal, I thought. Almost everybody gets it. Lots of people say it's no worse than a cold. I'm fit. I exercise. I'm healthy. I've had all the booster shots. COVID will give me a chance to lie around for a week. But then knives appeared in my throat. Every swallow hurt. I felt awful. (coughs) I'd cough and couldn't stop. (coughs) It was hard to breathe. This was much worse than any flu I've had. I was scared. After all, COVID still kills hundreds of Americans. Will I be one? The CDC says I'm especially vulnerable. The vast majority of those deaths are among the elderly. I don't think of myself as elderly, but that's just stupid. I'm old. In fact, I'm very old, 76. I rarely think about being 76. Heck, I play beach volleyball. That's me. I ride my bike on city streets. I think I'm a kid. But last week, COVID reminded me how old I am. People 65 and older are still at high risk of dying to COVID-19. I researched which hospital I should go to if I struggle to breathe. I worried, will they put me on a ventilator? That might kill me, I read. I shouldn't be looking these things up on Google. Google makes everything scarier. Will I get long COVID? Have brain fog? Get COVID pneumonia? I've got to stop Googling things. But what should I do? If it's COVID, Paxlovid. My doctor called in a Paxlovid prescription. Thank goodness for this new drug. Within two days, I felt better. I could breathe. It's alive! Three cheers for America's vilified free market. Pfizer developed Paxlovid in record time. 
Early tests showed it saved lives so well that Pfizer was told by the outside committee overseeing the trial that it should stop enrollment right now. Stop enrollment, they said, because it would be unethical not to give sick people the drug. Still, the FDA wouldn't let the rest of us have it for months more. Of course, months is a big improvement over the 10 years they usually take. How can I get some of this? None of those drugs have been approved by the FDA. In this movie, Matthew McConaughey accurately portrays how AIDS patients were not allowed to get life-saving drugs. Screw the FDA. I'm going to be DOA. Bureaucratic government kills people. My brother's potentially life-saving discovery, I released this video about it, has been inching through the review process for almost a decade now. At least during the pandemic, the FDA loosened some rules to let some people get medicine sooner. But of course, once government's involved with anything, things become more difficult. In the case of Paxlovid, government announced it would distribute the drug itself. One result is that my local pharmacy doesn't carry it. Thank you for calling your 24-hour CVS pharmacy. CVS does, but their phone system hung up before I could ask for delivery. I had to get a relative to pick up the pills. And what's the cost? Zero dollars, zero cents. Government pays. Hooray. But free isn't really free. And government bureaucrats have little interest in making anything simple for consumers. My pills came with 19 pages of warnings and instructions. Important things in here, like drug interactions, are buried by government nonsense like HIPAA rules that bully us into lying, promising we've read the fine print that none of us really reads. Come on, you've done it too. Okay, enough. I'll stop ranting about government. I'm glad I'm not dead. I'm grateful to Pfizer for inventing Paxlovid. I'm grateful to live in America where there's still innovation. But I can't get away from it. More and more, I resent the ever-increasing rules from our always-growing government. You're going to tell me that I'm not fit to work in your town? Philip Truesdale and his daughter Hannah Howe run Legacy Non-Emergency Ambulance Service in Ohio. They take patients places for treatment, move people from hospital to hospital, and take people to doctor's appointments. I started a business with one truck, and in a year I went to six trucks in the state of Ohio. But when they tried to expand to Kentucky, just a few minutes away across that river, they were told, you may not pick up patients here. I can take them, and I drop them off, and I can't go back and get them. People waiting hours for medical transportation. Kentucky's government says a public health crisis exists, citing a report that found a shortage of ambulance providers. When six-year-old Kyler Truesdell fell off his motorcycle, his mother says the doctor at the local hospital told her that he should be transported to Cincinnati Children's to check for internal injuries. We'd be about a two-hour wait before they could get there. Kyler happens to be Hannah's cousin, but Kyler still had to wait two hours for an ambulance. We would have done it for free, but it would have been illegal, so we couldn't do it. It's illegal because of con laws in Kentucky and three other states. You have to get something called a certificate of need to run an ambulance service. Certificates are awarded only to businesses that the state's bureaucrats deem necessary. So you applied for one. We did. After 11 months of waiting, they discovered that their application was being protested by existing ambulance providers. We go to court and these three ambulance services show up. 
They hammered her, treated her like she was a criminal. What do you mean hammered her? They just, uh, do you know what you're gonna do to this company? Do you know what you're gonna do to this town? It wasn't nothing to do with us being physically able to do it. Just come through like the big dog, not trying to let nobody yeah. else on the porch. Later they learned four ambulance companies applied for permission. How many got it? None. That didn't seem right to Philip. Anybody that draws breath ought to be allowed to work. Who gives the big man the right to say, you can't work here? The yeah. government, the law. Kentucky ought to change that law. He and his daughter were lucky to find the Pacific Legal Foundation, a law firm that fights for people's right to earn a living. 46 states operate without certificate of need laws. Lawyer Anastasia Bowden filed the suit with the goal of restoring the Constitution's promise of economic freedom. This prevents a proliferation of unnecessary ambulance services. Traditionally, uh, we allow the consumers to decide what's necessary. The existing operators are never gonna say that more businesses are necessary because they don't like the competition. None of those ambulance providers would talk to us. But one did send us a statement that says, saturating a community with more EMS agencies than it can support leads all agencies to become watered down. You can't have too much competition because businesses will start cutting corners. And that's just absurd. We now recognize that competition leads to efficient outcomes. Not in states with con laws, where patients wait. Those are precious minutes to the consumers who would benefit from ambulances. Not just ambulances. 35 states have con laws for things like medical imaging companies, hospitals, even moving companies. Once you get these laws on the books, it's very hard to get them off because the monopolies like their monopoly. This all started back in the 70s with the federal government in an attempt to keep prices down and to expand service. But what they found 10 years later was that certificate of need laws were resulting in exactly the opposite. The feds actually learned a lesson from their mistake and said, whoops, this is bad, let's get rid of these. But by that time the damage was done, the laws were on the books, and now it's too hard to get them off. So you sue? We sue. They've taken 14 cases of government overreach to the Supreme Court. They've won 12. It is an abuse of government power to restrict somebody's right to earn a living just as a handout to the other businesses. It's not a handout, it's protecting a vital service. It's protecting a vital service for the current operators only. Your local hospital could close. In Virginia, when politicians try to repeal their state's hospital con law, the established hospitals poured more than $200,000 into ads like this. The General Assembly is voting on legislation that will financially ruin your local hospital. We don't see that in other states without con laws. We see hospitals alive and well. Call your legislator now. But in Virginia, the ad campaign worked. The state still has con laws. They like these laws, they keep the competition out, and they're gonna fight to keep these laws on the books. People think of hospitals and medical issues as different from regular competition. It's just more important. If it's more important, then it's exactly the place where we need more competition, because competition has been the uh, driving force of innovation, lower prices, and better services. Everywhere, competition works. Con laws are a bad deal for both consumers and entrepreneurs. No one should have to ask permission to compete. Who gives them the right to say that you can't start a business?
a nationwide grounding of all flights. America's air travel was paralyzed this winter. Tens of thousands of passengers were left confused and frustrated. Why? Because of a government computer failure. There were problems with the notice to air mission system. Okay, computers sometimes fail, but last year, one in five American flights was delayed, often because our flight control technology is lousy. Why is a country so often on the cutting edge of innovation, stuck in the dark ages when it comes to air travel? Because our air traffic control is run by the federal government. Is the system out of date? Well, the system is continuously being upgraded and improved, but I think that is one of the key questions that, uh, uh, that we have to look at. But the government's been looking at it for decades. The FAA first promised modernization in the 80s. Then they promised a computer upgrade called NextGen. NextGen will enhance safety, shave minutes off flight times. But NextGen hasn't happened either. The FAA won't say when it might be done. American air traffic control is a lot like it was in the 1960s. Where is your plane? The information was put on flight progress strips that indicate the route, altitude, and other important flight data. In America, these strips of paper still keep track of flights. Computer printouts of individual flights that air traffic controllers can then manually move around. Printouts, they move manually. We are making every effort to modernize and look at our procedures. Why does it take them so long? This is your government at work. Diana Furthcott-Roth worked for the Transportation Department during the last administration. Air traffic control was in your department. You could have fixed it. You should have fixed it. I had control over a small portion of DOT budget. A billion dollars of it, but... I was not allowed to take that money, give it to my friend over at the FAA and say, Dan, here's five million towards your new computer system. And no one else was allowed to do it either. Government managers have little flexibility. They must fund specific projects pushed by politicians. Projects that benefit rural, suburban, tribal, and urban communities. It sounds like they mean well. It sounds a lot better to talk about social justice, nuts and bolts, like computer hardware for the air traffic control gets left behind. Computer hardware isn't left behind in Canada. We have been shaping air navigation with groundbreaking solutions. Decades ago, Canada turned air traffic control over to a private company. They got rid of the paper flight strips we still use. You won't find them in the tower in Vancouver. They're all electronic. See how this one changed color? Right. This is just a better way to track flights. It's not just Canada that does it. Dozens of countries have now privatized or partially privatized. And they innovate. No longer do traffic controllers squint through binoculars. Many aren't even at the airport. Since 2018, the International Airport at Saarbrücken has been remotely controlled from the remote tower center in Leipzig. Those things that look like windows, they're digital monitors. I miss my binoculars, but I enjoy that the zoom cameras have different zoom settings I can use, which the binoculars didn't have. I can see the aircraft also during nighttime and a lot clearer than before on the rear tower. A government study found that in countries that privatized, safety stayed the same or improved, costs were lower, and there were fewer delays. What this new tower enables us to do is manage our airspace more efficiently and safer. So why doesn't America do that? 
because our government's dominated by crotchety old politicians who don't like privatization and don't seem to understand technology. They talk about those paper strips. They use paper strips in the traffic control towers. Well, yeah, we do. It works real well. Such politicians partner with labor unions. We are the AFL-CIO. And unions do what unions do. They advocate for keeping the same people in the same jobs. Because some jobs would go away under this better system. Some jobs would go away, but other, others might open up. All these people fight change. And so in America, government still runs flight control. And the old computers keep failing. A nationwide ground stop. This is due to a computer issue. The private sector would guide flights better, but this frightens people. What about safety? This is a system that isn't broke. Why are we trying to fix it? For-profit companies, they'll cut corners and planes will crash. For-profit companies actually run the airlines. What ensures uh, a high quality is competition. We could have one fast food chain, Uncle Sam's Burgers, and it would be probably mediocre hamburgers. But we have McDonald's, we have Wendy's, we have them all competing for your business and that makes them all better. Yeah, that's hamburgers. They aren't flying through the air with me inside. This is more important. Yeah, well, would you rather fly Aeroflot or United Air? Good point. The Soviet Union's airline not only offered lousy service, they crashed more often than private airlines, killing thousands of people. Today's innovation, if we would allow it, will make our flights even safer. There is a camera housing which encapsulates 14 high-definition cameras. Other countries have it. Why can't we? Because governments don't do anything well. Everybody in this line, they're sick of this. They're sick. I'm sick of it too. Government inefficiency just degrades our lives. However, we're efficient here at Stossel TV. We'll use your money well if you Click that button to help us make more videos. Where is America heading? The political left and right have two different visions for our future. The left wants more government. The right says we should have less. You heard the cries of outrage for the people of Bell, California, who discovered that their town managers paid themselves hundreds of thousands of dollars. Shame on you! Shame on you! You were a crook yesterday, you're a crook today, and you'll be a crook tomorrow. Maybe. This week, they were arrested. They used the tax dollars collected from the hardworking citizens of Bell as their own piggy bank. But much of what they did was what lots of politicians do, vote to spend taxpayer money on what they think is important themselves. They want to do whatever the hell they want. Exactly. Rarely is there such blatant self-dealing as there was in Bell, but every day politicians spend your tax dollars on their vision of what America should have. That's what some Tea Partiers are angry about. In this case, they're yelling, kill the health care bill. But Congress didn't kill it. The bill is passed. Passed along with the Serve America Act and Wall Street reform, plus foreclosure relief and children's health insurance and extended unemployment and, of course, the stimulus. They always spend more. Thomas Jefferson said, it's the natural progress of things for liberty to yield and government to gain ground. 
But never before outside wartime has government gained so much ground. Just got to stop spending. It's got to be a point to the end of it. For most of the life of America and when we grew the fastest, government spent in today's dollars just a few hundred dollars per person. But today, the federal government alone spends $10,000 per American. Total government now eats up 40% of the economy, 40%. Yet the political class always claims they need more. Many people are hurting. Help America's steel workers. Pass funding for black farmers now. I average 20 to 30 meetings a day in my office, and 20 to 30 meetings are people asking for something from the federal government. Paul Ryan is an unusual congressman because he believes government should do less. And that's You're what, telling your colleagues, stay out, don't do anything? Yeah. <laughs> well, in, in many of these cases, yes. That's so. not a popular idea around here. Congress listens to testimony all day, and 99% comes from people asking for stuff. I propose that Congress pass legislation. I propose that Congress ask Congress. To There's a reason people show up and beg. And it does work and it does pay off. So the people who are connected get the goodies. That's exactly right. And that's what happens in a big government society. Most people like getting free stuff. Yeah. But I think more and more people in America are beginning to wake up to the fact that this thing is coming unglued. When the health care bill was close to passage, Ryan took on the president directly. This bill does not control costs. This bill does not reduce deficits. There's some strong disagreements on the numbers here, Paul. When it was all over, the president smiled and they shook hands, but they came nowhere close to agreeing. It's adding trillions in obligations that we have no means to pay for it. Why are your colleagues saying it's okay to spend more? Are you saying they're just stupid or they don't care or they're pandering no, for votes? I think, well, pandering could be a part of it, but I think what it is is they believe that the government should be far larger and far bigger. Stop spending so much. Well, that's something you should tell the Republicans, John. Democratic Congressman Rob Andrews is a friend of Paul Ryan's. He says, don't blame us. President Reagan and both President Bush's spent more than either President Clinton or President Obama. So, so the all of you stop. I agree with that. But to assign responsibility to the Democrats for this problem is not factually accurate. It's true that in the past, government has grown just as much, sometimes more, under Republicans. But these days, it's the Democrats who are most eager to spend. There you go. It's done. You ever think government's doing too much? This is what built the country. This is the Declaration of Independence mm -hmm. and the Constitution. It's pretty thin. Mm -hmm. Limited government. I mean, you guys have gone way beyond this. Mm -hmm. I don't think that a social security system is excessive government. I don't think that a Medicare system is excessive government. I don't think that the student loan system, I don't think that's excessive government. We have to make sure that the most vulnerable people are always protected. That protected by a bigger uh, government is the progressives' million, argument. And Columbia University professor Mark Lamont Hill makes their case better than most. We have suffering everywhere. Here he's giving a commencement address in California. Republicans and Democrats, poor people and rich people, middle class, black, white, everybody has to be involved in this struggle. What those of us who are at the top of the economic ladder have to do is be willing to make sacrifices that ultimately will benefit everyone. Everyone benefits when we pay a little bit more to create universal health care. Everyone benefits when we pay a little more to have better public education systems. Everyone benefits from that. And by we, you mean government. We always talk about the government like it's this monster in the hills that comes down and hands things out and takes our tax money. We are the government. Well, we, yes. Oh, yeah. Only in libertarian fairy tales. In real life, the government is us.
The government is us? In your ideal world, what percent of the economy should government be? For me, housing, health care, and education are the, th in addition to national defense, are things that the government must provide for people. And that's, and that's probably where we differ. So if that means 20%, I'm okay with it. If it means 30%, I'm okay with it. I don't think it will ever get that big. It's already at 40%. I mean, here, here's the graph of the growth of government since the yeah. beginning of the republic. For most of the history of America, it was tiny, less than 5%. Right. Now, Much of that has to do with inefficiency and waste. But you want more. I don't want more inefficiency and waste. Where you and I and where I part ways... It's not big enough now? It, it is not big enough now. It is not big enough now. Really? It is awfully big. So big that we're now $13 trillion in debt. And yet they keep spending more. There you go. There you go. We are done. Yeah. But how will we pay for it? We fight most about the income tax. Raising taxes is a recipe for disaster. But there are so many other taxes. Payroll, corporate, capital gains, estate, sales taxes. In fact, equal to the income tax are dozens of sneaky taxes you may not even know about. You and I pay them all day long. From the moment I wake up and turn on a light, I pay more when I brush my teeth and license my dog. My building pays property and fuel taxes and adds it to my monthly bill. And when I leave home to take the subway to work, I pay the Metropolitan Commuter Transportation Mobility Tax. At work, I make some phone calls. Yes, absolutely. Or get a bite to eat or a soda to drink. Uh, I'd like a smoked turkey in this. When I gas up my car, as much as a quarter of the price of gas is federal, state, and city excise taxes. Heck, people pay sales taxes all day long. So many taxes. I need a drink. I'm lucky I don't smoke. Yet some people say we should pay more. And all those taxes are just fine, say progressives. It costs to live in a civilized society, and we all need to pay our fair share. Our fair share. Progressives say taking from the rich to help the poor is simply the fairest system. No, the fairest system is the one that, that rewards the makers in society as opposed to rewarding the takers in society. Arthur Brooks wrote The Battle, which argues that a fight between free enterprise and big government will shape our future. The way that our culture is moving now is toward more redistribution, toward more progressive taxation, exempting more people from paying anything and loading more of the taxes onto the very top earners in our society. But I'm wealthy. It's kind to take it away from me and give it to people who need it more. Actually, it's not. The government does not create wealth. It uses wealth that's been created by the private sector. Americans are in open rebellion today because the government is threatening to take us from a maker nation into taker nation status. Diversity, equity, and inclusion are everyone's responsibility. DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. That sounds nice and responsible. No wonder all big companies now require employees to get training in it. Because we understand that racial and systemic bias have many causes, sources, and ways of showing up within each of us. Even if that's true, do you know what American companies now do to address it? Some make ritual apologies for America's past. We want to acknowledge that the land where the Microsoft campus is situated was traditionally occupied by the Sammamish, 
by proclaiming guilt. Companies try to signal that now they're virtuous. The Snow Homish, the Tulela. It's nice to apologize. Yes, but what is it really doing? Eric Smith was a diversity officer at Drew University. Now he teaches at York College. Why'd you stop being a diversity officer? I just thought it was a useless thing. There's a better way to go about doing this. Diversity and inclusion. Useless or not, companies continue to pay big money for trainings. There's a whole industry now designed to cater to companies looking for a quick way to check that box. In the U.S. in 2020, DEI was a $3.4 billion industry. Every big company. They feel like they have to. They have to say something. They have to signal to the world that they're doing something. Is it effective? No. Uh, in fact, it seems to be doing worse. It seems to be making people uh, less likely to interact with people who are unlike them, you know, because it's like a minefield now. Less likely to interact. After a training where you hear things about microaggressions, if you ask somebody what they do for a living, somehow that's racist, right? If you learn that, then why would you take a chance? I better not talk to Eric because I might say something wrong. Precisely. So now inclusion means I'm going to silence myself and not talk to the black people. All white people are racist. Some trainings are just divisive and dumb. I believe that white people are born into not being human. This is extreme, I take it. It is extreme, but it's becoming more of the norm. These slides were shown at a Coca-Cola diversity training. The thesis of this training was try to be less white. They're talking about arrogance and things like that. That is by no means a white thing. The point is to demonize the other side as much as possible. And absurdly, diversity trainings don't even do what they're supposed to do. This Harvard professor analyzed studies of them. Sadly enough, I did not find one single study which have, has found that diversity training, in fact, leads to more diversity. In fact, the Harvard Business Review reports five years after diversity training, the share of black women managers actually decreased. It's not about data, it's about a power grab. A power grab that starts in schools. Melt to the steel bars of racism and white language supremacy. This expert tells teachers it's racist to teach traditional English. If you use a single standard to grade your students' languaging, you engage in racism. You actively promote white language supremacy, which is the handmaiden to white bias in the world. Smith was in the audience. I heard that, um, thought it was a bit misguided. So Smith wrote a long and thoughtful response saying it's a disservice to minority kids not to teach standard English. For that, he was attacked. We are professors in communication. I thought we could communicate. I was so wrong. Instead of a discussion, people called you racist. Do you enjoy using Western modes of argument to invalidate people of color? Check your privilege. What they saw in me was a bigger threat than anything they've seen before. A black person saying it's okay to teach black students uh, standardized English. An academic named Eve complained about the harm Smith consistently perpetuates. Other academics joined in to coddle Eve. Eve spent tremendous labor, physically, intellectually, and emotionally, to write his response, and most probably took him extra time to recover from that labor. God, it's like they're victims everywhere. Yes, that's the point. You have to perpetuate the victimhood. That's part of the narrative. It just isn't even 
logical discussion. Has academia gone insane? Yes. <laughs> That's the short answer. Yes, it has gone insane. I was surprised that the leader of that academic conference agreed to talk to me. You engage in racism. He's since grown a beard. If you use a single standard to grade your students' languaging, you engage in racism. Standardized English tends to exclude um, uh, many groups of people. My parents came here from Germany. They made me learn standardized English. Were, were they being oppressive? I mean, where would I be if they hadn't? There are absolutely benefits to a standardized English, but that same world creates those same benefits through certain kinds of biases, and they can be bad for many um, folks who simply are not going to be able to meet that standard. I'm simply saying that I don't think everyone needs to be held to it. If they're not held to it, how can they succeed? Yeah, I think that they do. I think that they can. He was much more measured than he'd been lecturing his fellow professors. I think you're toning it down for my audience here, because you and your conference speech were all about, this is an oppressive country and white racism, white dominance. I tried to be rhetorical and I tried to use the moment to make a statement. In other words, he played to the crowd. Your students who do not embody enough of the white um, habits of language that make up your standards, stand at your classroom doors and die for your comfort. That anger is the norm with DEI advocates. At Stanford Law School, a judge who'd been invited to speak was stopped by angry students and Stanford's Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Absolute disenfranchisement of their rights and The diversity dean lectured this federal judge for six minutes. Is it worth the pain that this causes and the division that this causes? Do you have something so incredible and important to say? about Twitter and guns and COVID, that that is worth this impact on the division of these people. At least the law school president later apologized, saying this violates Stanford's commitment to free speech. Good. I'm glad some sensible people push back against nonsense like this. <laughs> and when it comes to DEI, this education reformer, Chris Rufo, proposes an alternative. EMC, Equality, Merit, and Colorblindness. I like equality and merit and colorblindness. Merit is a good thing. But demanding it, we're told, hurts minorities. Our students of color struggle and fail even when we are, are there to help them. So some colleges drop admissions tests. High schools eliminate honors classes. What is that going to do to an entire group of people? Nothing good. I mean, if you wanted to hold down a group of people without them knowing it, this woke thing is a good strategy. The gap between black and white students is widening. Minority and underserved students falling further behind. What's the better way? Talking. People don't say what they feel because they don't want to get canceled. They don't want to be called racist. People are censoring. And we have to stop doing that. Eric Smith is right. Stop censoring. Instead, let's debate. And in a future video, I'll have a longer debate with Asao Inoy, the advocate for not asking kids to learn standard English. It's crazy. Government imposes a million rules, and Americans seem to want more. The motion is adopted. 
People say they want more government. And politicians are happy to deliver. We are going to get rid of fossil fuels. Thomas Jefferson said the natural progress for things is for liberty to yield and government to gain. That's what's happening. Natural gas hookups will be banned. Minimum wage is set to increase this year. New rent control measures. It's very easy to lose freedom. It's very easy for politicians to legislate freedom away, but it's incredibly hard to get back. This 22-year-old understands the importance of freedom better than politicians and the media. These new rules they're passing, they're meant to keep us safe. How much of our lives are we willing to give up for safety? Kristen Tokarev is one of the winners of our Stossel in the Classroom video contest. I wanted to show us a brief clip. Stossel in the Classroom is my charity that provides free market videos for teachers to play in class. Lead some students to change their minds about things like government welfare. Its intentions are good, but the people that accept welfare, they over time, they lose the incentive to work. It often takes videos to drive the point home. They really opened up my mind to think differently. It changed the way that I viewed the world. Was watching my videos in class more fun than listening to a professor lecture? It's always more engaging. Unfortunately, most students don't watch. What do we do? Stand up, Today, many are taught that capitalism is a problem. It's time may be running out. Younger people see so clearly the failings of capitalism. I can't say I'm pro-capitalist without my friends, people on the internet, or anyone really coming at me for it, telling me, how could you? Everything on social media is eat the rich. Eat the rich and feed the poor. This is class war. Kill capitalism. It's synonymous with greed. That's fair. <laughs> Capitalists want to make more money for themselves. Sure. By wanting more money, I can create something that I can then sell to other people. And why is that good? Because then you get new products and you get new innovation. Today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. The media tell us capitalism makes life worse. If capitalism works, if this is the best we got, why does it seem to give such a raw deal? But kids who learn from Stossel in the classroom no, it's a good deal. Everyone watching this video is living a better life than even the richest men of the 1800s. This video from high school student Caden Morgan points out how capitalism's innovation improves our lives. We got air conditioning, we got cell phones, we got microwaves, we got stinking toilets. The media are right, however, when they say, Inequality of income and wealth has surged. That's a big reason why socialism is having a moment in American politics right now. Some people are really filthy rich. Others don't have enough. Under capitalism, yes, there's going to be some people who are wealthier and some people who are poorer. Um, but you have the opportunity to become wealthier and to grow. Under socialism, sure, everybody is equal, but they're all equally poor. I wish more American kids understood that. Socialism is totally on trend. Kids love socialism. Uh, I think socialism is great. Socialism is on point. I mean, I don't really know what socialism means, to be completely honest with you. Kristen knows. She learned what socialism means, not just from my videos, but from her dad. He grew up under socialism in Bulgaria, where not only were people poor, but modern music was even banned. He couldn't listen to rock music without the fear of persecution, of getting beat even. Some fans roamed the streets of Sofia at night and yelled, punk's not dead, but always after making sure that the police were not around to arrest him. The only way her dad could hear what Westerners could hear 
was to smuggle in tapes. The quality was awful. Absolutely. But they would play it all day. All day. It was the only taste they had of what life was like outside of the Iron Curtain. There was only really one rock band that was allowed in the country. And even that group, their songs were censored because it didn't fully align with the political agenda at the time. What does the music have to do with socialism versus capitalism? It has everything to do with it. In one system, you're allowed to listen to it and you're allowed to enjoy it freely. And then in another system, like the one that my parents were in, you're being controlled. What if your decisions, the choices you made, weren't even up to you? Freedom versus control. That's what many contestants focused on. Ian Hunter of Concordia University won our college video contest. Individual liberty is crucial for people and communities to flourish. I wish America's politicians would listen to these kids. Freedom is essential, not only you know, to prosper, to make money, but it's essential to be yourself. Thanks for watching our video. To make sure you get the next ones, subscribe and hit the notification bell.